Well, I want to invite you at this time to be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you happen to not have a Bible with you today, you should be able to find one within reach. Maybe if you see somebody without one and you've got one within reach, pass it down. It's, our passage can be found on page 1014 in those blue hardback Bibles uh, this morning. As you're turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to go ahead and also mention, if you are one of those that like to follow along and maybe kind of keep the train of thought going, there is a, an outline that's printed in the bulletin for you, so I invite you to turn towards the back if you'd like to follow that. We're going to be looking at three different kind of elements of this passage. I'm going to read for you just a moment just kind of the, the two main themes, but we'll flesh that out in three different points that are really kind of jumbled together this morning as, as we would have it. But uh, first off, we're going to see that we are to come to Jesus. Sounds pretty simple, that we're to come to Jesus. We're going to see what that means, that we are to come to Jesus. But we come to Jesus in order to offer sacrifices. And I think we don't, we don't think about that on this side of the cross. I think we don't, we don't like, to, we're really not comfortable with thinking that we have to do anything, that we have to sacrifice anything, that, that Christ fully satisfied with His once for all sacrifice on the cross. Now, I'm not here to refute that, but I want us to see that we are actually called by God to offer, as we'll see, spiritual sacrifices. And we do that so that we are chosen and precious in the sight of God. I want to ask you to stand, if you would. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. We stand each week out of reverence for God's Word. We believe that this is God's holy, inspired, and without error Word, and it's Him speaking to us, starting in verse 4. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Would you remain standing and pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we just give you thanks for your word. Lord, you could have stayed silent and chosen not to speak to us, but Lord, you have chosen to speak to us through the pages of Scripture. So Lord, would we come this morning, Lord, would you bless the reading of your word? Would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? Would you put me aside and would you speak directly to our hearts from your word this morning? Would you give us eyes to see you clearly? Would you give us ears to hear your word clearly? This morning that we would see Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. And as you do, 
I said we're going to flesh through those three kind of points. And we come to Jesus in order to offer sacrifices so that we are chosen and precious in the sight of God. Now, I hope that sounds really good to you. I hope that when you hear that, you're thinking, I want to be chosen and I want to be precious in the sight of God. And that's something that we all should really want and desire to be precious in the sight of God. But what I want us to see from the passage is that the only way that we are chosen and precious in the sight of God is if Jesus Christ is infinitely precious to us as He is to the Father. So as we desire, as we should long to be precious in the sight of God, as Scripture tells us, there is only one way, and it is through Jesus Christ, as we will see this morning, who is chosen, who is precious in the sight of God. So as we look at this passage this morning, we will see that God, through Peter, is talking about two main things, and I've I've printed them there in that outline in the back of the bulletin. And those two main ideas are that we need to see the identity of Jesus as the living stone and what it means that He is portrayed as the living stone. And then secondly, the role of Christian believers as members of the living church. I actually kind of changed the passage. I didn't change the passage. I cut off the last two verses that we were going to include in the passage this morning, and I've tacked them on for the sermon next Sunday. So we're actually, I'm going to go ahead and warn you, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. It's kind of like when the news ends and the story you've been waiting to hear about the whole time, the reason you turn on the news, they say, we'll be right back after they just told you what they're going to report to you. So I'm, I'm wanting to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger here so that you'll want to come back next week to really see how we are to flesh out as living stones, as the living church for God. How God actually uses, believe it or not, and I hope that we do see some from our passage this morning, that God uses me and that God uses you as living stones, as living, breathing members of His living church that He is continuing to build up. Now, can't you just sort of see Peter here reporting this, writing this for us to read? Can't you see Peter who was called, if you remember, he was called the rock from Matthew chapter 16, if you remember, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. You know, Jesus comes to his followers and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they name out some really great people. You know, John the Baptist, you know, Elijah, come back from the dead. People really think you're somebody great, Jesus. But Peter says, you know, and Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? In other words, you're to have a different answer than just the people. You're a follower of me. You have come to me. As we're going to see today, if we have come to Jesus, we're to have a different answer than just the people around us. And Peter steps up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah who has come. And Jesus says, do you remember? He says, blessed are you, Simon Peter says, for man has not revealed this to you, but God alone has revealed this to you. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus was not saying that He was going to build His church upon Peter as the rock, as the foundation. 
think we miss sometimes that Jesus is actually saying that He would build His church upon the truth in which Peter had just confessed. And that's very important this morning. As we come to this passage, that we see that, that God's Word and Jesus telling Peter, on this rock I shall build my church. That it's upon the truth that we confess that Jesus is the Christ. That He is God Himself. That we have to believe that God Himself died on that cross. That is the truth. That is the foundation that He will build His church. But here's the beautiful thing about it. That's where we get our confidence. That's where we get our hope. And I want us to see that this morning. That it's upon the truth that Jesus is the living stone. Capital S, stone. We are living stones. Jesus is the stone. He is the rock. He is the cornerstone. He's the foundational stone and rock that God will build His church upon. But can't you see Peter enjoying these Old Testament passages that describe Jesus as a stone, a living rock, after that conversation that he had with Jesus? So, Peter describes Jesus to those who believe and call upon His name. And this is the part where we're getting to is the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, and what it means that He is the living stone, the cornerstone. Peter describes Jesus to those who believe and call upon His name as a precious stone. We're going to see what that means, that Jesus is a precious stone. Then He says that He's the cornerstone. And in verse 7, Jesus is a rejected stone stone. And then in verse 8, Jesus becomes the stumbling stone. What we have in view is the identity of Jesus as God's consistency, as the rock, as His solid. Jesus is our consistency. That God is the same as He always has been, that He is right now, and that He ever will be. That Jesus is God's consistency, the cornerstone in which all of God's purposes and all of history would be built so that He could be the Savior of all men and all women who call upon His name. But the particular word that's used here to describe Jesus as a stone is not merely just a rock, a stone. In other words, that someone could just know that they were about to build something and they needed a good solid piece of rock that just anybody could come across and just see it and go, oh, that, that's a good size. That's solid. If I, can, if I can get that in my arms, I'm going to take that back with me. This is not just any rock that anyone come, could have come across. It's a very special stone. No ordinary stone, one of a kind. But here's the part when I started studying this that really made sense to me. It's a stone. Jesus has been very carefully dressed. He's been very carefully chiseled out where the mason is actually perfectly fitted for exactly what he wants that stone to do. That Jesus Christ is fit perfectly for that which he is to serve for us, which is our place on the cross. That Jesus is no just mere man. That he is that God-man, that God and man, perfectly fit to serve the purpose for me and you. Meaning, I can't take your place. 
Your spouse cannot take your place. You can't take the place of your children. But Jesus steps in, takes our place on the cross. But He had to be able to do that. The only way He could have been able to do that is if He is also, as we are, could truly be tempted just like you are, just like I am. So we don't have a weak Savior. We don't have a Savior that was so guided by God's Holy Spirit that He really couldn't fall. He wasn't so guided by God through His earthly walk and His earthly ministry to where He was really set to where there's no way He could have fallen. Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that you are and more. That is how we get to our knees. That is how we come to the cross and we actually take that knee and we bow down and we humble ourselves knowing that Jesus has gone before us and it was no easy task, but a task that He knew that He would do from all eternity. So this very carefully chiseled out, perfectly fit stone is how we build ourselves up, those who are called into fellowship in union with Him because Jesus has made the way for us to be reconciled to God. But what happens to that stone? It's very important that we see what happens to Jesus as our stone. Look at verses 6 and 7. Let me read them again for us. Verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This cornerstone, Jesus has become the rejected Son. He's become the rejected stone. But we need to pause for just a moment. We need to ask a very simple question, but it takes serious thought to answer. Why does any of this even matter? Why, you may be saying, Harrison, why the study of so much geology this morning? Why, why are we studying about rocks? It's very important this morning that we understand that this matters because if you look back at verse 4, verse 4 says, as you come to Him, and actually a preferred translation of that verse that I, that I like is actually come to Him. Come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, when we think about coming to Jesus, there's something very important about our coming to Jesus. Scripture's not referring here to what we would call conversion. Scripture's not saying, come one time to the cross, come one time to Jesus and be saved. When it says, come to Jesus, Scripture is saying, come over and over and over and over again to Jesus. Come continually to the cross. Come continually to your Savior out of acknowledgement that you need saving. It's not talking about something we do one time and then we're all good. So who do we come to? We come to Jesus. Why do we come to Jesus? And this is an important question. When, when they read this originally and said, come to Jesus, we have to understand 
Jesus was not somebody at the end of his life that the people were thinking, that's somebody I want to go to. Well, that's somebody really standing up for what he believes. They didn't see Jesus as this strong Savior type. They were saying, where's your power? Where's your army? So when they read, come to Jesus, they were thinking, he hadn't called on anybody yet. I don't see him with a lot of great things. I don't see him, you know, with with all the luxuries of life. It's not very easy for Jesus. He's rejected by his own family in his own hometown. It's not somebody I'm following. It's not somebody I'm going to come to if I'm in need. Even even Satan. Do you remember from Matthew 4 when Satan came came to Jesus and tempted him in the wilderness? He said, if you're the Son of God... In other words... You don't seem to be. That's what the people were saying. The questions they would ask Jesus, you don't seem to be the Son of the Most High. So Satan played on this. And he said, if you are the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, he said, where's your power? Where's your army? He said, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Do you remember that from Matthew 4? He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from this high point. And he said, for it is written... He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, many people decided that this Jesus, this, this Messiah that they saw, that must not be the true Messiah. Because they were expecting somebody to come in, sweep in and make it all better. Bring in the army and just conquer everything. They saw a crown. But what Jesus got was thorns. They didn't see Him as somebody to come to, to get a lot of confidence in. So the people decided, this this Jesus isn't... He must not be the way. But as they were not confident in building upon Jesus as their foundation, they were actually setting themselves up for fail, setting themselves up for caving in of anything that they ever built up. But verse 4 of God's Word this morning tells us to come continually to Jesus because He's what? Why do we come to Jesus? Because He is chosen and He is precious. As builders lay that cornerstone where it would rest securely in order to hold up an entire building just the same, God has laid Jesus as the cornerstone. All who build upon Him, all who are called through the gospel and accept it and believe it, become righteous and be saved. Mary Margaret was preparing for her Bible study on Thursday night. And she called me real quickly and she said, I'm sorry to disturb you. She said, I'm just really excited. Just one little old question right there in the Bible study. But she said, we're going to be talking about justification. She said, I'm excited about that. She said, justification is important. She said, and understanding what it means that I've been justified is really important. And I said, absolutely. We got, we got to talking and we went for 15 minutes or so just talking about justification. And she said that they are going to this group of women was going to be discussing how prone we are to fall back to our default setting of trying to self-justify. That we want to justify ourselves. And after we talked for a while, we, we started thinking about it. And as we hung up, and I think we even mentioned some of this, But I started thinking about what it means that I've been justified by God, meaning that God has declared me not guilty. Not at all. That God has justified me. 
means that God treats me as if I had never sinned. That's amazing. That God treats me. God treats you based off of Jesus. Treats you as if you never sinned. But here's an element of justification that I think that we just kind of... If, if maybe we had it at one point, I think we've wadded it up and I think we've kind of thrown it in the corner. And it goes back to that self-justifying default setting that we have. I am just as justified today as I'm going to be tomorrow. You were just as justified last week, today, as you will be in 10 years. I don't care how spiritual you get, how mature you get in your walk, how many times you read the Bible in a day, in a week, in a month, read it through in a year. I don't care how many times you do those things. You are just as justified as you are today, as you will be in a year, in 10 years. Whenever it is that you leave this life, you are no more justified then than you are right now if you are fully trusting in Jesus. And that is so important. God has declared you already not guilty. We already saw Chris preached a couple of weeks ago from the first part of 1 Peter that it's kept in heaven. Y'all remember that language? Kept in heaven. How can my salvation be kept in heaven? Because it already exists. You can't ask me to keep something for you if it doesn't already exist. You can't say, hey, Harrison, hold this for me if it doesn't exist. It's kept for us in heaven. It already exists in Christ. We've been declared not guilty. Period. I need to quit trying to justify myself before God. It gets back to that presenting ourselves, as we'll see quickly, presenting ourselves as living sacrifices to God. I've got to quit trying to justify myself before God. The ultimate sacrifice has been made that God's wrath, that which I'm supposed to fear and be scared of, God's wrath, and it is something to be fearful of, I've got to tell you. But God's wrath has been diverted because of Jesus' work on the cross. Not because of anything I could ever do. And that is so important. But there's a double transfer going on here. We call this an, an imputation, if you're familiar with that term, that only for the righteousness that is imputed to me because of Christ am I saved. What that means is there's, there's a transfer going on. But here, here's the point, and we, we briefly hit on it. We briefly hit on it in verse 6. But it's the idea that I get Christ's righteousness, that He treats me as if I'd never sinned. So I get Christ's righteousness, but Christ, but Jesus takes on the guilt of my sin. I have no more claim on the guilt of my sin that I've done it and that I'm guilty of it. I've been fully acquitted of all charges. But here's something we don't think about. And we briefly hit on it in verse 6. If Jesus, if all the guilt of my sin has been laid on Jesus, and guess what? All the shame of my sin has been laid on Him as well. All the shame I want to feel for my sin. I would venture to say that the Bible is telling me that when I want to feel so much shame and everything for my sin, I have no right to feel that shame for my sin. The only person in this equation that has any right to claim to the shame of my sin 
is Jesus Himself. Now, we don't have time to unpack that this morning. The passage hits on it, and I think it's important for us to understand that if all my guilt, if I'm no longer guilty of my sin, why am I shameful of my sin? My confidence is in Christ. I want to think of myself and how I'm presented before God. But if I have Christ's righteousness, if He looks at me and He does not see Harrison Hatfield, but He sees Jesus the Christ, then I have no claim on the shame of my sin either. How awesome is that? You talk about girding up, as we've already looked at, and having motivation and being encouraged to live as we've been freed from our sin, but to live for Jesus, to live for God, not live for myself for my own pleasures. The idea of Christ as our stone is to give us confidence. Because see, if we understand 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter's identifying Jesus as the rock, as our foundation, when we come to a passage like Philippians 4.13, when we come to that, we actually understand the confidence that God wants us to have. Now, how many of you are probably familiar with Philippians 4.13? Maybe because it's been made real popular by the the black under the football player's eyes. You know, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who? It's okay. Strengthens me. That's exactly right. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. But if I understand 1 Peter chapter 2, and I come to Philippians 4.13, I understand that it's not the idea that I can therefore do anything I set my mind to. But that's what I want to think. I can do anything I set my mind to because Christ is strengthening me. I can go take on the world. But here's where our confidence lies. It is, if I really... Let me say it this way. In Philippians 4.13, and all sorts of other verses and passages throughout the Bible, they're actually telling me that I'm okay to fail. Philippians 4.13 is telling me that it's okay for me to come up short and have the strength to overcome my failures in Christ. Philippians 4.13 means that I can overcome adversity in my life and I can also be humble in prosperity because Jesus is our living cornerstone. And if we're built upon Him, we can be secure. We can be immovable staring straight into the face of misfortune. That's what Philippians 4.13 is saying, that I can stare straight in the face of misfortune and have confidence based off the strength of Christ at work in me. And that misfortune could be caused by sin and its effects or by death or by the evil one himself. You can stare straight into the eyes of that and have strength to overcome because Christ at work in you. But on the other hand, the other side of the coin, page 2 of the story, reports that those who are not built upon Him must be lost and condemned, for there is no help for them. In other words, there's no other place to look outside of Jesus. So this is why I believe that Martin Luther called Jesus the test stone. Luther called Jesus the test stone. Stone, Because they are those who disobey the gospel. They, in fact, find themselves rejected by the stone that they themselves had rejected. I know that's kind of hard just to hear. I hope that made sense, but that, that's hard to land clearly in the comprehension. So here, here's what I mean by that. 
you may reject this stone. You may reject Jesus. You may stumble over this stone. But look at verse 8. And he's quoting Isaiah 8, 14. He says, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. What he is saying is that you may stumble and reject this Jesus as the cornerstone, the foundation of which your salvation is to be built upon, but it was all part of God's plan. Some translations say, to this they were appointed, or as they were destined to do. But why would Peter say this? Has he been reading too much Reformed theology? Is he too caught up in the sovereignty of God and predestination? He just had to put it in here? He just had to find an opportunity to include that? Well, I don't think so. I think that God through Peter desires, he is longing for his people to be encouraged. See, he's trying to encourage us because the people that Peter was addressing here, guess what? They're facing some pretty tough persecution, some pretty tough rejection themselves. He wants us to know that there is nothing that surprises God. I heard it this past week. Somebody was in a particular situation. They said, God doesn't make mistakes, does He? And I said, He doesn't. Our confidence must be in God. Most people at some point or another, I think, have had an opportunity to doubt God. Have you ever had that opportunity? And I call it an opportunity. Have you ever had that opportunity to doubt God. Here's an example of what I mean by that. Doubting is not necessarily a bad thing. We want to think that it is. But doubting God is not a bad thing when it strengthens our faith. If you doubt to the point that something must be proven to you, though, before you'll believe it, even if you get to the point of believing it, but it had to be shown to you and proven to you, your faith has not strengthened Guess what? Your faith is weaker. If it has to be proven to you before you will faithfully believe it. Some people get to the point where they ask questions such as this. They may not be you know, dressed and look exactly like this, but here's the way the questions go. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, then how could He have let this happen? I don't know. Take some natural disaster... Take something, you may have something that's real in your life right now. Take that thing, take that misfortune. Something that's happened in your life recently. And ask the question, or see if you've ever asked the question, if God is all loving, then He would have stopped this from happening to us if He could have, so He must not be all powerful. If He's all loving then He would want to prevent this from happening in my life, so He must not be all-powerful because He couldn't stop it. Then the other side of the coin is, if He's all-powerful, then He could have prevented this from happening, and He chose not to, so God can't be all-loving, or this wouldn't have happened. Do you see how that works together? We don't want to think that God can be all-loving and all-powerful and still have misfortune in our lives. We don't want to think that those two things go together. So in our passage this morning, we're actually encouraged and given even more of that hope that we desperately want in those times and should want no matter where we are in our lives. Even the rejection of Jesus was all foreseen and planned by God's purposeful, all-knowing, all-wise, all-loving providence and governing 
all His creation and everything in it. Absolutely everything that happens to us is part of God's plan. But we need to rest securely in that. You may reject His way, but you cannot reject His plan. I've heard it said like this before. It's very helpful to me. God in the end is glorified in our belief or in our unbelief. God is triumphed God is triumphant in our obedience or in our disobedience. So before we leave here today, I have to say something to you. Now, it may flow off the tongue and come out fairly easily, but it's really not easy to say. It wasn't easy for me to ask myself the same question this week and to to flesh through this. The real evidence that Christ is no longer a stumbling stone is that you think of Him as the Father thinks of Him as chosen and as precious. Verse 7 says, This is the honor for you, the believer in Christ, that Jesus Christ is precious to you, but He must be infinitely precious. That's what Luther was getting at by calling Jesus the testing stone. Here's the test. What does Christ mean to you? Can you answer that Jesus is precious, infinitely precious to you, Can I say that Jesus is so precious to me that nothing else ranks in value as compared to Him? Here's another way to phrase it. What would I give up for Christ? And I don't mean for 40 days. What would I give up for Christ? Is Jesus more precious to me than my house? Is Jesus more precious to me than my car? Than my job? Than my health? Than my children's health? Than my security financially? Is Jesus so precious to me that I count all that stuff as just rubbish. It's garbage. I would kick it to the curb in a heartbeat compared to having and knowing the knowledge of Christ that surpasses all things. Would I be willing to give up everything I have as seeing Jesus Christ as infinitely precious in my life? Or am I holding on to it? Can I really say that Jesus is more important to me than anything else in this life. And I'm planning next week as we get into the next part of this passage. I think I said this recently, maybe a few weeks ago. Um, do I think about the world to come more than I think about the world in which I live right now? When's the last time that you thought more about God's kingdom and the world to come than you did about the world in which we live in right now? It's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to ask myself that question if I'm truthful with myself. I don't think about God's kingdom as often as I should. I don't count Jesus as infinitely precious in my life. Peter often bragged. He boasted that Jesus was more precious to him than anything in all the world. But do you remember how Jesus would often respond to him? Do you remember Jesus would say, Simon Peter... Do you really love me more than these? Am I really as precious to you as you have professed? Jesus knows our hearts. He knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words before we even speak them. So He looks at us and He says, Am I really more precious to you than all these things? He desires that He becomes that precious to you and to me. Because of His knowledge of us, He knows that we need Him more than anything in this world. He cares about your heart. And here's the thing. As stained and as messed up as my heart is, He wants the whole darn thing. 
He does. He wants every bit of it. So our passage says to come to Jesus, to come to Him continually, over and over and over again to come to the Savior of the world. But here's the thing. This is not something we do once a week. We don't come to Jesus once a week on Sunday mornings. This is a great thing we're doing. Next week, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look as members and believers in the living church of God, how He uses us in such a dark world to be light and to speak light in such a dark world. But this is not something we do once a week. We're to come to Jesus continually. And He doesn't care what you come dragging behind you either. There have been some nasty things brought and laid at the foot of the cross. And there's not a one of them still standing. That's the amazing thing of the love of Christ. So then what? We come to Jesus and we become living stones. It's part of the living church. That's the role of the Christian, of the believer in Christ, is to be, verse 5, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. But very quickly, God says that we are living stones after Christ as He is the cornerstone, but we must make sacrifice to God. Now, I'm not talking about that intercession of diverting the wrath of God as I mentioned earlier. The sacrifices that we are to make are spiritual in nature. But how do we do that? What does that look like? If we are to be the holy priesthood, a royal priesthood that we'll talk about more next week, then we're to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that were made for the guilt of sin, and then there were sacrifices made to the Lord because sin had been removed. Jesus fulfilled the first of these by His full sacrifice of Himself on the cross. But in response to that sacrifice, Jesus has made to bring us, because of what Jesus has made, that sacrifice, to bring us the forgiveness of our sins, believers of Jesus are called upon to make sacrifice of thankfulness and praise to Him. Romans 12.1, don't turn there. Let me just read for you quickly. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's what Romans 12 says. That's our spiritual worship. Worship. Peter's very obviously not talking about when he talks about the living church. He's not talking about brick and mortar in a church building, which is really great news for us as a church plant. He's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. We are the living stones that He is building His church. We are the church. We are chosen. We are precious in Christ. But we are to be laid side by side, that you, that you, that you, that you, and you, and I could just keep pointing, that we are the stones that are to be laid side by side upon Jesus as our foundation. All of us in this room to come to Jesus, to place our faith in Him, to build up His church, which is us, side by by side, to fit together so that God's house will be absolutely glorious. I mean, look, look left and right and behind you and in front of you. If people looked at us, do you think they'd see us as glorious? I mean, think about it. No offense. Look at me too, okay? You're, I'm, I'm throwing myself in here. I mean, if you look around, are we a glorious bunch of folks? But God has told us, I will make you absolutely glorious. 
And next week we're going to see just how He does that. And it's amazing that He makes us, a bunch of sinners, absolutely glorious, chosen and precious in His sight. Because He wants to use us to bring about His purpose to share the gospel with the whole world. Let me just say, we've run out of time, but let me just say, Jesus is beautiful in God's eyes. Absolutely beautiful. You are beautiful in God's eyes if you are trusting in Jesus. That's your hope. That's your confidence this morning. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just give You praise. Lord, that You can make something out of nothing. Lord, to make us Lord, a living church, a living sacrifice is amazing. Lord, to think of myself as being precious in Your sight shouldn't even be something I could dream of, but Lord, You tell us that's exactly how we are if we believe in Jesus. Would we come to You every day? We pray in His wonderful, powerful, and all-loving name. Amen.